Hell, March 13th. Esteemed mortal, they have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit, and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orlinians and your foolish police call the Axe Man. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense to the way they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but his satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, etc. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for it was better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the axe-man. I don't think there is any need for such a warning, for I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm." Undoubtedly, you Orlinians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am, but I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the Angel of Death. Now, to be exact... At 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, March 19th, 1919, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared, in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, that is that some of your people who do not jazz it up on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold and crave the warmth of my native Tartarus, it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my discourse, hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed, either in fact or realm of fancy, the Axeman. This was the infamous letter sent to the Times-Picayune newspaper 101 years ago this week. 
in an unsolved string of some of the most gruesome and inefficient fatal attacks on Italian grocers, the city of New Orleans was experiencing dread from May of 1918 until October of 1919. And the legend of the Axeman carried on as an urban legend that made its way into popular culture. So, Welcome to the Mothball Prophecies, a podcast about legends, the paranormal, and just plain strange events as seen through a modern lens. I am your host, Jonathan. In this, the first part of our series on the Axeman of New Orleans, we will look at the first attacks attributed to the Axeman. But before we get into that, I need to acknowledge the main sources for this and the upcoming episodes in our series. The records available through the New Orleans Public Library System, various sites about legendary monsters of the South and the United States in general, and The Axeman of New Orleans, The True Story by Miriam C. Davis which I will link in the show notes because it is chock full of information on the Axeman. Now, while many retellings of the legend of the Axeman start off in late spring of 1918, the truth is that the first attacks may have taken place as far back as 1910. Picture it. New Orleans, 1910. It was a Saturday. Mr. and Mrs. Crudy owned a residence with an attached grocery store slash bar. Mr. Crudy was an Italian immigrant who ran a respectable business in the Bywater. That night, Mrs. Harriet Crudy stirred from her sleep to see the figure of a man holding a meat cleaver looming over her bed. He demanded that she give him her money. Or, he said, I'll do to you what I just did to your husband. Frightened to her core, Mrs. Crudy looked down and beheld the body of her husband at the foot of the bed. Panicked, she reached under her pillow and gave the stranger a box containing eight dollars, which, by today's inflation standards, is just under two hundred twenty dollars. Not a bad sum to sleep on. He demanded more, but she insisted it was all she had, and the figure left, taking the crudy's pet mockingbird with him. Outside, he sat down on the corner of Lessop Street and let the bird fly free as he rolled a cigarette. However, Mr. Crudy was not dead, something that would become a common thread in a number of similar attacks. As Mr. Crudy groaned, his wife went for help and finally found a police officer. Mr. Crudy was taken to Charity Hospital while the police launched their investigation. After a brief stay at the hospital, Mr. Crudy recovered his injuries, which were not as severe as they initially appeared. When questioned by the police, the Crudies could not think of someone who would want to rob or attack them in this manner, much less someone who held ill will against them that matched the description of the intruder. The chief of detectives, 
one James Reynolds, decided, without much evidence to go on, that the attacker had to be either mentally ill or a drug fiend. That's thorough police work. Word was put out for the police to be on watch for anyone matching the description of the attacker, and everything converged on a petty criminal named John Flannery. Now, Flannery did indeed have a history of burglary, and was never one to turn down cocaine or morphine, and he did spend time in the mental hospital. He was in his 20s, which is a bit younger than the 30s to 40s description the Crudies gave of their attacker, but it was dark, and the lack of light can play tricks on the eyes. However, a railroad shoe pin was found in the Crudies' grocery store during the police investigation, and this kind of matched up with a railroad shoe pin that was used in burglaries that were supposedly committed by Flannery. So, the police decided they had their man. Thus, John Flannery was indicted for burglary and the assault of Mr. Crudy on September 9, 1910. However, due to an assessment of his mental faculties, John Flannery never saw trial. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia, and declared to be an insane and irresponsible permanent menace to society. Flannery was recommended to an insane asylum, but medical professionals deemed that his mental condition had improved. The district attorney even refused to prosecute, claiming that if Flannery were guilty, he was insane at the time of the attacks. In other words, he got better. However, he was held in parish prison for about a year before he was released. Mr. Crudy went home after only spending a single night in the hospital, and even the Mockingbird eventually returned. The Crudies would resume their lives and their livelihoods. Now, one month later, in the middle of the night, Joseph and Conchetta Rossetto, proprietors of a grocery store serving the black community on the outskirts of New Orleans, were sleeping. They were children of Italian immigrants, and the Rossettos built up a successful business. At 1.45 a.m., a lone figure loomed over the Rossettos' bed with a meat axe, which was slightly heavier than the cleaver used on Mr. Crudy a month earlier. He brought down the axe, slicing Mrs. Rossetto's neck, and then went after her husband. The stranger sliced clean through the cartilage of Mr. Rossetto's nose. Mr. Rossetto found his revolver and managed to fire off two rounds. The assailant panicked, dropped his axe, and quickly fled the house. Unlike the attack on the Crudies, the attacker did not stop to take anything on his way out. Because of the distance and the conditions of the road at the time, rescuers actually had to carry the Rosettos to Charity Hospital. 
Mr. Rosetto was disfigured and permanently blinded in one eye. The wounds Mrs. Rosetto received left surgeons believe she wasn't going to last long at all. Once again, Chief Reynolds and his men were called to the scene of the crime. Much like the Crudy's place, the attacker broke in through the kitchen and made his way to the bedroom of the sleeping couple. As Reynolds thoroughly inspected the site, he noted the similarities with one glaring exception. The man they were sure had committed the first attack, John Flannery, was still being held in parish prison. So, who was committing these crimes, and how were they linked? How has this crime gone unsolved for over a century? And what does all of this have to do with the letter from the beginning of this episode? Which, honestly, seems like a forerunner to the letters Dave Berkowitz used to send to the Daily News, or, to a lesser extent, the average Reddit post by some indignant nerd. We'll explore more of the Axemen's exploits and the efforts to catch this unsuccessful serial killer, serial assaulter, on the next episode of The Mothball Prophecies. If you want to share something about horror or the paranormal here in New Orleans, join our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mothballprophecies, or you can follow me on Twitter at mothballshow. If you want to email your stories, suggestions, or comments, drop a line to mothball at crescentcitymedia.com. As always, if you enjoyed this show and want to hear more, please like and share the episodes with your friends. Until next time, sleep tight.